listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10. And you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Mark Yusko. Mark is the founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management and managing partner of Morgan Creek Digital Assets. Prior to founding Morgan Creek, he was CIO and founder of UNC Management Company. Before that, he was senior investment director for the University of Notre Dame Investment Office. He received a BA with honors from the University of Notre Dame and an MBA in accounting and finance from the University of Chicago. Enjoy my conversation with Mark Yusko. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Wow, thanks for having me on. Great to, to be hanging out here in the new year. That's great to have you. So the first question I like to start out with guests is going back to 2008. Up until then, we saw a lot happen along the way, long-term capital management blow up, SNL crisis, Asian crisis, a lot of things along the way, but nothing was really like 2008 and we're still almost kind of recovering from that. Talk a little bit about what you were doing back then and professionally and what was going through your mind during that time. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great place to actually to to start conversations these days because we are definitely living in in almost a new era because of what happened in 2008 into 2009 in the global financial crisis. And you know, pretty much everything over the last 10 years has been governments and central banks around the world doing everything they can to avoid that scenario again, maybe to the point of, of extremism in some areas, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But you know, in 2008, it's kind of funny. I mean, we were actually celebrating, uh, believe it or not, um, you know, we had gotten early uh, into the short subprime trade. And, you know, I have you know mentor Julian Robertson, uh, famous Tiger hedge fund uh, fame, and he has this great advice. People would leave his shop and he, they'd say, oh, Julian, do you have any advice? And he'd say, yeah, make sure in the first two years you get lucky. And, you know, great advice, hard to follow. And we had launched Morgan Creek. I had left the University of North Carolina in 2004 for Morgan Creek. And it took us actually three years before we got lucky. But we did get, get really lucky in the sense that, you know, we came into kind of the end of 2006, beginning of 2007. And, you know, we, like everybody else, were riding the, the, the good markets and, and uh, feeling good about things. And, a uh, number of people that we started talking to were getting increasingly antsy about housing. And one of our clients in particular called us up one day and he was just mattered in a wet hen. And I'm like, you know, Arthur, what's, what's wrong? And he says, I deserve to live here. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, I sold my company for $300 million and, you know, I live in Incline Village, Nevada. And, uh, you know, the average house price here is $12 million. And, 
you know, I deserve this. And the guys on either side of me, 35 years old, young kids, he said, there's no way they can afford to live in these homes. This ends badly. Find me a way to get short. And we're like, wow. Okay. So we went out and we met with a bunch of people and we ran into John Paulson and John Burbank and Kyle Bass and Phil Falcone. And we ended up, you know, over the next six, nine months, putting about 10% of client assets in the short subprime trade. And it worked out really, really well for us in 2007. And we made a lot of money for clients and a lot of money for ourselves. And we grew a lot and Morgan Creek was rocking and rolling. And so in 2008, I said, we were, we were kind of celebrating and we were extra celebrating because we pressed the bet and got short real estate and REITs. We got short financials. And when I say we, I mean, you know, at the time we were mostly a fund of funds. So we were allocating money to external managers and we did a little bit of co-investing side by side. But by and large, we were picking the really smart managers like Tiger Global and others who, who did a great job getting us short. So, you know, in the debacle that, that was 2008 into first quarter 2009, you know, markets were down 60 plus percent. And we had a number of our vehicles that were actually positive over that period. And, and our, you know, hedge fund of funds was only down 20 so instead of down 60, you're down 20. So that's a really good outcome. So that's, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying we were, we were very pleased in 2008, despite the fact that you know, we had lost some money. Um, but we, uh, the flip side of that is we probably overstayed our welcome in being defensive, and we really didn't understand and appreciate what the impact of QE would then be over the next couple of years, starting in March of 2009. Right. And that transitions us right to talk a little bit about the balance sheet and the easing that's gone on, not only with the Fed, but around the world. So when you look at the balance sheet, pre-2008, it grew organically off and on it ran up to around 800 billion and you know they took it all the way up to to four and a half trillion and this was going on years after that initial liquidity injection that was probably needed um and then it was going to be like watching paint dry everything was going to roll off and then we've done this sharp <laughs> reversal and back up to the highs of where we've been so talk a little bit about how you see the balance sheet and the stimulus that they just keep trying to prop things up and prop things up. And I think you had mentioned in the past, going back to 2016, it may have been a recession, but wasn't technically yeah. counted as one. So talk a little bit about how, how you're looking at all that. Yeah, look, I, you know, I, I've said for a long time that uh, we are in QE forever. I even have a hashtag for it, QE forever. And uh, the reason I believe that is, you know, QE wasn't invented by us. I mean, it's been used around the world for, for over a century, and the Japanese are the experts at it. And, you know, what happens is as a population ages and governments make promises to the elderly to secure their votes, they basically give them entitlements and that creates massive budget deficits and the need for governments to issue massive amounts of debt. Well, when you issue massive amounts of debt, you only have a couple choices. You can either pay it back, you can default on it, or you can inflate it away or devalue your currency away. Well, there's no way they can pay it back. Right? There's, you know, if you look at Japan today, their, their government debt is you know, more than 200% of their GDP. So even if, if, they, even if they taxed 100% of GDP, they can't pay the debt back. So paying back is not an option. Default is not an option because if you default, those in power get kicked out and those in power like to stay in power. So they're not going to default. So the only choice for millennia is to inflate away the debt or you know, basically destroy the value of your currency and create massive wealth inequality, push the wealth up to your cronies, 
at the top, what happened to the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, you know, empires fall. Now we got the American Empire stuck in the same problem, had Japanese Empire. And so Japan, interestingly, in 2007, said, we're going to stop doing QE. And they call it QQE, qualitative and quantitative easing. And in, interestingly, they were at 26% of the GDP on the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan. They said, we're not going to do it anymore. Stock market crashed. They immediately started doing QE again. They've been doing QE ever since. And today, they have just over 100% of GDP on the balance sheet of Bank of Japan. The yen has been devalued massively. And uh, while they don't have any CPI inflation, because of the way CPI is calculated, they have effectively devalued the, the currency to inflate away the debt. And basically what they've done is they've concentrated the wealth in the hands of a very small number of very wealthy people who own all the real estate. And the average person doesn't have any wealth. So the same thing is happening in Europe and the U.S. Europe is nine years behind Japan demographically. The U.S. is 11 years behind Japan demographically. And so the exact same thing happened. You know, European Union said, oh, we're not going to do QE. They don't even call it QE. They call it the you know, bond purchase program. They don't even call it QE. But they started buying bonds. And then they said they were going to stop. And they still haven't stopped. And their balance sheet is now closing in on, I think, 40% of GDP. So last year, we got to 26% of GDP on the Fed balance sheet, coincidentally. Same number as Japan in 2007. Uh, again, 11 years, 12 years later than they said it. We said, we're not going to do any more QE. In fact, we're going to reverse the balance sheet. And they tried. And then bang, starting in December, they've monetized $400 billion of debt. Don't call it QE, though. You know, it's just repo. No, it's QE. So we're in the same place and we're going to be at 100% of GDP uh, within six or seven years. Uh, the dollar is going to get devalued. The debt's going to get increasingly larger, but will be inflated away by devaluation of the currency. Yeah, that makes a great point. And going back to the comment on Japan with the, the Bank of Japan owning basically cornering the market on Japanese government bonds. And you've talked about in the past how they might end up owning, just buying up the whole lot. All of it. I think it's over 80 plus percent now, something like that. Do you have any recent views of, of how your viewpoint has evolved on what might happen to the currency? Because, you know, there was a lot of speculation that it would just decimate things. And now there's some interesting talk about maybe that's not actually the case no no it, I, it's a great point and um you know when people talk about the devaluation of the currency and what might happen in a debt jubilee and a debt jubilee is basically where if you think about a government you know government issues the debt and then the central bank basically creates fiat currency out of thin air and buys back the debt in the market and at some point, you know, to the point we're about 75, 80% today, JGB is owned by the Bank of Japan. Once they get to 100, one branch of government can turn to the other branch and say, we're good, right? And they just cancel <laughs> exactly. the debt, right? They just cancel the debt and do a debt jubilee. And it's what, you know, the UK did this in the 1860s and basically started over. They canceled everybody's debt. They gathered up all the tally sticks. They canceled the debt. They adopted dual entry accounting, went from single entry accounting to dual entry accounting with Medici system. And so the bottom line is that can happen again. It probably will happen again. And Japan will be first. And we say, no, it could never happen because you have an immediate crash of the currency. No, 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 no. The currency has been debauched each year that the government issues more yen to buy back the JGBs. And so it's a slow boiling of the frog. And you know, when you boil a frog, the frog stays in the water until it becomes so paralyzed it can't jump out and it dies. If you turn the water up really hot, really fast, the frog would just jump out and it wouldn't die. So the same thing happens here is if you tried to print all the money at once and buy all the bonds at once, 
it wouldn't work because the currency would collapse 40, 50, 60, 70%. But instead, if you devalue it six, 7% a year over a decade, nobody really notices. So the same thing's going to happen in Europe, same thing's going to happen in, in the US. And eventually, these governments will, will essentially devalue the currency, destroy the currency. And so the average person gets totally screwed. Right. The average person who has a fixed income or who has a you know fixed <coughs> wage with minimum wage, they're totally screwed because their purchasing power is eroded every year. The people at the top of the pyramid love this because the value of assets, scarce assets, real estate, collectible cars, art, wine, real estate, stocks, those things go ballistic. The problem is at some point you get into a runaway hyperinflation like Weimar Germany or you know Zimbabwe or Argentina or Venezuela and bad things happen. So uh, whether you can control that, you know, the way the UK did in the 1860s or the way it appears Japan is today or the way US probably will 10 years from now, um, we'll see. But but it won't be a big problem and I do believe there will be debt jubilees. I do believe we'll start over. But I believe the way we'll do it is the same way they did it in, in the UK, is they abandoned their old accounting system, went to the new dual entry accounting system. We will all abandon dual entry accounting and we'll go to triple entry accounting and we'll move to crypto. Right. And for you mentioned the history part, and I recommend to all the listeners a really interesting webcast you did called Beyond Belief, Why Unquestioned Faith in Central Bankers May Be Misguided. You can find it on YouTube. This was back in August. Yeah. Um, really interesting going back and, and learning the actual history of central banking. And, and yeah. a lot of people may not know this stuff. I didn't know a lot of the things in the webcast, and it was a real eye-opener eye to to study financial history and also you do a great job uh, with your letters and highly recommend those. And so just going back to the Fed monetizing debt. So there's this question about, okay, the treasury is issuing bonds and primary dealers are buying them. And the Fed, like you mentioned, creates digital USD and then buys treasuries on the open market, you know, pushing yields down. Um, how do you actually view that? Some people say, okay, it's, that's just an asset swap. Other people say, well, technically you might as well have the Fed just buy it straight from the treasury. We cut out the middleman of the primary dealers. Um, ah, and it's well, kind of essentially yeah. the same thing. And of course, all the interest gets remit, remitted right back to treasury, you know, from the Fed. So how do you view that piece? Well, look, it, it, it all depends on on uh, goals and objectives, right? If, if people think, you know, well, what's the most efficient way to do it? Absolutely, as you describe, it's more efficient to do it directly, but that's not the goal. The goal of QE and of these asset purchase programs is to liquefy the bank balance sheets, which had been destroyed during the global financial crisis, right? Is after we repealed... Um, not Dodd-Frank. Um, Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall. When we repeal Glass-Steagall, basically the banks paid the administration back then to repeal Glass-Steagall so that they could lever up to higher levels and they could intermingle investment banking and commercial banking, uh, which never should have been allowed. And Glass-Steagall was a, an amazing piece of legislation, even though it was in response to the crisis of the Great Depression. But it was an amazing piece of legislation because banking that's guaranteed by a government entity should be a regulated entity, should be controlled, should be limits on, on leverage. Investment banking, where you're taking private capital investors or private capital equity investments, you want to you know risk that at a higher level, you want to lever up more, you want to do other things fine and dandy, but you can't commingle those because you can't have the implicit full faith and credit of the government behind entities that are 40 and 50 times levered. So bottom line is they repeal Glass-Steagall, all the bad actors happen, Lehman, Solomon Brothers, you know, Bear Stearns, et cetera. They crash. 
you know, I, I still remember the day where Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley credit default swaps were at 500 basis points. I mean, they, they were out of business. And if it weren't yeah. for the government doing TARP, they were done, right? Those banks were done. Now, some would say they should have been done and people should have gone to jail and probably in that camp. Um, they should have done it in Iceland and let the bad guys rot, but they didn't. And so what they did explicitly is say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to delever, but what we're going to allow you to do is we're going to allow you to borrow money from the Fed, put it on deposit, buy treasuries because we need people to buy treasuries because we've got to issue a lot of treasuries because we're, we're not, you know, we're profligate spenders and we'll allow you to lever that up the normal 10, 11, 12 times. Well, that's a riskless trade. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, look at JP Morgan last year, they had zero negative lost trading days. I mean, how is that possible? If you trade, you're take, supposed to be taking risk. You're not supposed to be having riskless trades. So when people think QE was designed to elicit growth, they're like, well, it's not working. Well, it wasn't designed to elicit growth. It was designed to save the banks and give them time to rebuild their balance sheets so that they could keep the fractional reserve system alive and well. And, and look, I'm, I'm not one of those people that says, you know, fractional reserve banking is immoral and should be abolished. And I actually think it's what separates the great countries from the also rands because there are a lot of countries around the world that have more natural resources, equal human resources, but they don't have the same luxurious kind of growth rates and quality of life. And, and uh, it's because they, they haven't really embraced and adopt this idea that, that fraction reserve banking does through rehypothecation allow the creation ultimately of, of more wealth and that leverage as a tool is fine. The problem is when you backstop that system and you take price discovery out and you take risk out and you basically rig the system for a very small group of cronies in the system, you start to look increasingly what I call the dictator playbook, where all the wealth starts going to a very small number of people. The gap between the wealthy and the the less wealthy grows now we have the highest income and wealth inequality in the history of the United States, that's a bad outcome. And so I do think that QE has been a wild success, but it's because I judge it based on its objective, which was to make the bankers rich. And it's done exactly that and the people that support the bankers. If you judge it on its ability to create economic growth and prosperity, it's been a miserable failure. But that wasn't its objective in my mind. Yeah, exactly right. And when you look at the reach for yield, you look at retirees being strapped for getting any type of income, any type of return. You look at pensions and endowments, a space that you know very, very well. So let's talk a little bit about forward-looking returns. You've mentioned in the past, when you look at the 10-year Note, okay, you know, yeah. what is that, around two, under two? This yeah, 1.83%. 1. 1. And you know, one, one thing 1. we 8. know mm-hmm. about bonds, they're the most easy asset class to forecast future returns because we can yeah. do it with absolute certainty. Yeah. If I buy a 10-year bond that yields 1.8% and I hold it for 10 years, I make 1.8%. I don't make 2.5%. I don't make 1.4%. I make 1.8%. And so there's perfect correlation between the forward 10-year return and the current 10-year yield. And so we know that bonds, technical term, are going to suck for the next 10 years. Now, within that 10-year period, you could have a period where rates go down and you do a little bit better in the short run, but then you're going to do worse on the back end. So if rates go from 1.8 to 1.4, it looks like you made money. But unless you sell, if you hold to maturity, you're still going to make your 1.8%. And you're going to make less in the second half of the 10 years than the first half. But the bottom line is bonds are really easy to know what the forward return is going to be. Yeah, exactly right. And when you look at equities, a little bit tougher to forecast. You can look at these seven-year forecasts put out by GMO 
you know, research affiliates, whoever it is. And obviously when you look at it, emerging markets has some of the best forward looking returns. But when you look at US equities, especially, they're some of the highest value they've ever been. What do you think is is keeping the market at these levels, especially some of the, the really highly valued stocks that are earning no money, uh, are rather losing oh, it's crazy. Of dollars, but, uh, I mean, Tesla and you know, you know, Blue Apron and some of these? It's really interesting because, you know, last year, last calendar year was this big headline number, 31.5% for the S&P and Everybody's all excited and it was a great year. Well, if you go back one quarter, so look at five quarters instead of four, that number turns into 7% compounded. They're like, well, no, no, that's not right. I'm like, oh, it is, right? I mean, we had a horrible fourth quarter of, of 18. And why? Because the Fed actually did its job, which was to return interest rates back to a neutral level and not have massive accommodation. You know, here we are 10 years into an 11 years into an economic expansion, and we're still using tools as if we're in the depths of the global financial crisis. And again, that's because the banks are fragile and the, there's too much debt in the system. And, and everybody knows that if we actually raise interest rates, the government can't afford to service the debt. Individuals can't afford to service the debt. Corporations can't afford to service the debt. And the Ponzi unwinds. And so what you had was a normal reaction to highly overvalued assets and a decreasing liquidity scenario, and you had a, a market correction. Well, people don't like market corrections. The Fed doesn't like market corrections. The president certainly doesn't like market corrections. And so uh, they reversed that. They put pressure politically on the Fed. The Fed relented. They cut interest rates. And so we had this big up year. If you go back to January of 2018. So we're talking now two years of return. Again, single digits compounded, not really that great. And so what people are missing who are forecasting anything other than low single digits or even negative returns for the next decade is there's only four ways to make money in stocks and that's it, right? You get inflation. So whatever inflation is, you're going to get, you get dividend yield, Okay, so inflation today is running around 2%. Dividend yields run around 2%, so that's four. Then you get real earnings growth, which is 1% less than GDP growth. We know for the next decade, GDP is going to grow at 2%. That's 1% from working age population growth and 1% from productivity. It takes money to make money, so 1% less, that's one, so that's five. So the best you could possibly do is 5%. And that's if... The fourth element, which is multiples, stayed where they are, where multiples are in the top, you know, two or three percent of all time history. They're more likely to contract than expand. Hundred percent of the gain in stocks last year was multiple expansion. Earnings were actually down. Multiples went up because people thought they could pay more for future earnings because interest rates were falling. The fallacy of that logic is if interest rates are falling, that means future growth is going to be lower. Future profits will be lower. You should actually pay a lower multiple, but nobody thinks like that. They just do a discounted cash flow model and spreadsheets always go up and to the right. So we're at this point where the future return for equities is likely to be close to zero on a real basis and probably two or 3% on a nominal basis. And there's going to be a lot of volatility. And so my, my feeling is we'll probably have a correction back to fair value. That could be 40, 50, as much as 60% down, and then a rally on the second half. So kind of like a um, you know, bad first half, good second half to the decade. But over the whole decade, you don't make any money, kind of like from 2000 to 2010. The one caveat, Ryan, and this is a really important thing, and I, and I hate to say these words, right? It's, it's different this time because of the four most expensive words in investing. It actually might be different this time because in 2000, you still had the preponderance of money managed by active managers. And I'm not saying that active is better than passive. I'm just saying that active is allowed to think. 
and passive is dumb. And I don't mean unintelligent. I mean, it's rule-based, meaning if Hormel Foods, okay, which is not growing, but is actually selling at 25 times earnings, which makes no sense. Why would you pay 25 times earnings for a company that's not growing? If money goes into an index fund, the index must buy more Hormel Foods because it has a certain weighting in the index and it must be bought. A human or an active manager or even a smart algorithm can say, no, I won't buy that overvalued security. I'll buy something else. And in 2000, we got to egregious valuations because people were crazy at the end of you know the Y2K boom and all the liquidity put in the market by the Fed. But in, in the first quarter of 2000, somebody woke up and say, no, I can't pay 286 times earnings for Cisco. I can't pay 125 times earnings for Microsoft. And those stocks that everybody thought could only go to the moon literally were dead money for the next 20 years. Literally, Cisco, Intel, Microsoft, Qualcomm, that four stock portfolio has been dead money for 20 years. The problem is today, so much money is in passive that we don't have the kid who's going to say, holy crap, the emperor is naked. And that's what I fear is that this bubble, and we're definitely in a bubble, this bubble could go longer than people think. And on top of it, when you got the tweeter in chief, whose only objective he thinks to get reelected is to have the stock market make new highs. When you can move markets with a Twitter account, um, that will be exacerbated by the fact that every time someone buys an index fund, 5% of it has to buy Apple, despite the fact that Apple had negative year-over-year growth and is selling at 25 times earnings. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and you brought up a good point about raising rates. We've talked on the podcast before about when inflation started creeping up, not creeping up, but going out of control and Volcker came down and and slammed down the hammer. Uh, GD, debt to GDP was much lower back then, 35, uh, 40% range. And now it's much, much higher than that. So there's a concern there of if the Fed did ever have to hike it seems unfathomable now with the past 10 years of kind of low inflation. But if that inflation ever did pick up with those animal spirits, um, the Fed may not be able to kind of go to that point of no return. Yeah, the, the only thing that, that I'll, I'll push back a little bit on, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a change in my thinking, is I actually think we're going to be stuck in a deflationary environment for much longer than people think. And the difference between the monetarists who all believe that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, who say, well, look at all this money that's been created and eventually it's going to make its way into the economy and slosh around and cause inflation. What they miss is that 65 to 85-year-olds don't spend a lot of money. They don't buy a lot of stuff. And they don't buy stocks, they buy bonds. And if you look over the last year, despite the fact the stocks made new highs, there was a net outflow from the stock market because the boomers, of which I am one, every year for the next 17 years, okay, they're going to take roughly a trillion dollars out of the markets. Right? They have to withdraw that money because of mandatory distributions from their IRAs and rollover accounts. So that is going to end up in fixed income because, again, 65 to 85-year-old people don't speculate. They save because they're not earning money anymore. And, and yeah, great. The people who are rich say, no, no, I speculate all the time. I'm still going to own stocks. Well, yeah, sure. But remember, 49% of people in this country don't own a single share of stock. Not only do they not own stock through a brokerage account, they don't have a 401k. They don't have a pension plan. 49% of people. So there's a whole bunch of people who don't care about the stock market making new highs. They're not going to buy stocks from here. They're going to own bonds. And so I think there's going to be pressure, downward pressure, 
on rates. And again, all we have to do is look at Japan. Japan has had no inflation and falling interest rates for 25 years. Right. And when you look at this kind of race to the bottom, and you've talked about the three Ds, the debt, demographics, deflation, and, and tech, obviously technology and all of these forces pushing down in this kind of deflationary environment, how do you reconcile that piece with the end game of everyone trying to inflate away their debt in the very long term? Is this, you know, how, how do you reconcile that piece? Yeah, look, I, I, I think it is the, you know, $100 trillion question yeah. uh, that it really is ultimately a race to the bottom. And uh, every country in the Western world is going to have to devalue their currency. And I think the difference is while you could have a runaway hyperinflation if you had a, a weak country like a Zimbabwe or a Venezuela, where you have these strong countries like Japan, Europe, US, uh, I think you're more likely going to have not hyperinflations, but hyperdeflations where there's a hoarding of cash and bonds and a, um, and a basically a, a, an absorption of that debt by the central banks who slowly boil the frog by issuing more currency and devaluing that currency. And so again, the poor are going to get poor, the rich are going to get richer, and you're going to have this, this slow death march to the Jubilee. And then post the other side of the Jubilee, I think we could actually have a lot of fun. And I think markets could be really interesting and, and really lucrative. But between now and then, I think you're going to basically have you know low single-digit returns from bonds and low single-digit returns from stocks. And and uh, scarce assets are going to appreciate a lot. So if you own San Francisco real estate or penthouse apartments in Miami or rare art or wine or Bitcoin, I, I think you're going to do very, very well. That makes a lot of sense. And the way you just described your equity valuation methodology, looking at GDP tied to kind of demographics and we can see the charts of the Nikkei that peaked in 89.90, never recovered. Europe peaked, never recovered. And then you mentioned in the U.S., not that that will happen here, but we have this huge generational shift of baby boomers retiring and shifting out of equities into fixed income. And then you have these demographic trends that are pushing down as well. I think you mentioned we're 10, 11 years after Japan. So I yeah, think I mean, just it. think about it this way. And, and, and this was real, a real epiphany for me. So I have a friend, Grant Williams, be a great guest for your podcast. Uh, and Grant uh, showed me this chart maybe four or five years ago that just totally blew my mind. And it, it basically takes the S and P and divides it by the price of gold. And in 2000, the bubble in equity prices equaled the bubble in equity prices divided by gold because gold had crashed down to a couple hundred dollars an ounce. And in two, and then, you know, that, that both ratios crashed during the crash. And then on the other side, um, 2008, that the peak in equity prices looked like a bubble, but the peak in equity divided by gold looked a little bit less bubbly, but just about the same. So, you know, the pink line, you know, followed the blue line. Well, now, and they both crashed after the global financial crisis. Well, now, since the bottom in 2009, the blue line equities go straight up and looks like a super bubble, looks crazy. But the pink line, equities divided by gold, is actually still way below 2008 because gold prices are up so much. And gold has been the perfect store of value for 5,000 years because it is this beautifully scarce asset. You know, the stock to flow ratio is, is very high because 
the new amount of gold that's mined every year is basically equivalent to what's lost or stolen. And so the stock doesn't really change. And when something is scarce and there's, there's no new supply, its value basically stays equal to purchasing power over the long term. So for 5,000 years, an ounce of gold is bought a fine man's suit. But what's interesting about Bitcoin is Bitcoin actually has a better stock to flow ratio because it's put into the code. And we know that a decreasing amount of new stock will be created every year for the next 140 years. So there's this movement towards digital stores of value like Bitcoin. But what all of this is telling me is that even though the nominal price of equities looks like a bubble, the real value of those assets is not nearly as big a bubble as we think because, again, we're slowly boiling that frog and we're basically stealing the wealth from the average person and putting it in the hands of the few. And the, the way I, I use the example is, you know, I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I went out to lunch the other day, just me, by myself. I had a burrito and a drink, tax and tip, and it was $18. Yeah. Like what? Well, when when did that happen? <laughs> like that I used to go to lunch for $5 not that many years ago. Maybe it was 15 years ago, but it wasn't 100 years ago. And so yeah. that's what's going on is quietly slowly things that the average person has to buy cost so much more. And there's this great graphic and it shows in the 1970s for $20 you got two carts of groceries. In the 1990s, you got one cart. Today, you get like three things. Yeah, I've seen that infographic. It's a really interesting way to kind of show someone inflation with a real photo they can understand. So closing just on Bitcoin, you touched on gold. Um, when you look at Bitcoin, it obviously doesn't have the 5,000-year history, but it, it has 10 years of 99.9% .9 uptime. It has other benefits. Portability is a lot easier. Uh, the verification is a lot easier. And it has pretty much all of the other properties, scarcity, and you can, you can go down the list, fungibility. When you look at, I think, valuing Bitcoin, you've said it best compared to gold. If we get parity, you're looking at 400 to 500K a coin. Um, you know, based on gold market cap of eight to 10 trillion. I think it's a question of right now, wow, that looks like an incredible call option at 100, 150 billion dollar market cap. Uh, obviously, it's probably an issue of, of portfolio sizing. As, as you mentioned, zero is not the right number there. Exactly. Um, do you think? Why do you think it's it's taken so long and, and, and we're even still in the process of, of more institutional onboarding? And is it a question of education because of how really complex it is? Yeah, look, it, it is all about education. And, and part of it is they just saw this big article, you know, it was the best performing asset of the decade, you know, Bitcoin up 90,000%. It's kind of a bogus article because the mm -hmm. first five years from, you know, 2009 to 2014, Bitcoin was not real. And I don't mean it didn't exist. It did. And there are plenty of people who are billionaires today because they bought it then and good for them. But the reality is if you weren't dealing drugs on Silk Road, you weren't a cryptography student or a cypherpunk, you didn't even know it existed. It was measured in you know thousands, hundreds of thousands, and ultimately millions of dollars over that period. And, and, and great. You know, if you were mining Bitcoin out of your dorm room, and, you know, you didn't throw the computer away and, and lose it in a landfill and, and you know, turn $1,000 into a billion. Good for you. I think that's fantastic. But those first five years, it wasn't a, an asset class. So to say it was the best performing asset class the last 10 years, I think, is a little disingenuous. So we're talking about an asset that's five years old. Five years is nothing in history, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's measured in, in microseconds. And so what we're dealing with is an asset that suddenly has gone from not even on people's radar to, oh, wait, I should think about this. And, and what actually is it? And what does it mean to have a digital bearer asset? And what does it mean to go from the analog world to the electronic world to the digital world? And what does it mean to say, 
that a digital store of value is superior to an analog store of value. If I have a brick of gold, I got to find a place to store it. So I got to pay for storage. It's really heavy. It's not very divisible. If I try to carry it through customs, I'm probably going to get busted. Whereas, you know, I can carry Bitcoin in my head. I can carry it on a phone. I can carry it on a computer. It's very portable. It's divisible to eight decimal points. It is a digital bearer instrument, which means you and I can, you know, can exchange it for zero cost, zero transaction cost, zero frictional cost. We can move it across borders and we don't have to be subject to the 400 year old rules that make the Rothschilds rich. So there are all these benefits, but it's, it's the same way that software has eaten the world. You know, yesterday was the 13th anniversary of the iPhone. I mean, just let that sink in for a second. Wow. 13 years is not a long time. Right. And, you know, Apple's the most valuable company in the world today, well, you know, worth well over a trillion dollars with a T. And it's because they created something that 13 years ago, nobody wanted an iPhone. Nobody, yeah. you know, wanted a, a, a way to connect to the internet in the palm of your hand. Now, you know, you can't get them out of people's hands. I mean, literally, people are getting bumps in the back of their head because they're staring at their phone all day. So that's a short period of time, and we create a trillion-dollar asset. And so the idea that Bitcoin, after five years of what I'll call the, the modern era, you know, we're still eight more years. Could we be a trillion-dollar or a five-trillion or eight-trillion-dollar asset? Of course, because more and more people are going to accept it. More people are going to understand it. Education is going to get better. You know, and the way I look at it is every new asset takes time to get accepted. There's a great viral video that went around about the first person who tried to use gold, right? He's, he's at a yak stand, you know, back in the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, and he comes up and he, he plops down a brick of gold or a rock. It's like a gold rock, a nugget. And the guy says, what is that? He says, gold. I want to pay for my yak. He says, can I eat it? No. Can I trade it to someone for a chicken? No. Well, what the heck do I do with it? Well, it's a store of value. You put it in a vault and you, you, you borrow against it. He's like, no, get out of here. Next. So the first guy that tried to use gold as money got laughed at. The first person who tried to use paper as money got laughed at. You know, the first person who tried to use a copper coin as money got laughed at. So the idea of, of digital money is really hard. But, but what Bitcoin is, and the best way to think about it, is it's a use case for blockchain technology. Blockchain technology is an operating system for the internet of everything. Whereas you know, we had DOS, disk operating system, to operate computers. Then we had TCP IP as the operating system for the internet. Then we had uh, Android and iOS as the operating system for the mobile net, all these mobile phones we have in our hands all the time, supercomputers. Now we're going to have the internet of everything. And the best way I, that I talk about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is money over IP. The same way that email allowed information over IP, internet protocol, to exist, and it changed the world. The same way that voice over IP disrupted an entire world of fixed line. You know, you're too young to remember, but you know, I used to talk to my girlfriend on the phone when I was in college and rack up hundred dollar phone bills in a night because you got you had to pay by the minute for a long distance. Right. And now talk around anywhere around the world for free because voice over IP. And the same thing is now we're going to exchange value or money over internet protocol seamlessly and invisibly but it's not invisible yet. So the way you know technology has arrived is when it becomes invisible. Like, I don't know how my cell phone works, but I use it every day. But if I tried to think about how it worked, I would just hurt my brain. So that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying that, look, we're at the very early stages. We're five years into a you know 500-year trend, and it's just getting warmed up. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your time. Why don't you shout out 
how people can follow your work. We're going to link your Twitter handle in the show notes and a few, a few of your other links. Yeah, great. So I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm on Twitter at, at Mark Yusko, M-A-R-K-Y-U-S-K-O. Uh, our website is morgancreekcap.com. And, uh, you know, there's other ways you can go to our, our YouTube channel, Around the World with Yusko. Uh, subscribe there. And we've got a bunch of webcasts that Ryan talked about uh, on every topic under the sun from, you know, get off zero uh, and crypto capitalism to China, oil, you know, the Fed, the history of the Fed and central banking around the world. Uh, so lots of great resources out there. And and uh, then there's a bunch of, you know, other videos and podcasts out there as well. But, uh, you know, lots of resources if you're interested. And uh, we appreciate the time together today. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder... All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.